Yeah, yesterday was my ticket selection day, so I had to spend about an hour trying to get it all figured out. Okay, so how does it work at TIFF? Well, um, in my case, I bought a pack of 20 tickets, and then uh, depending on how generous of a member you are, as in what contribution level you're at, um, you get a pre-selected window. Did you get all the ones you wanted? The only one that I really wanted that I didn't get was uh, this new French sci-fi film called High Life. Mm -hmm. Okay. With uh, Robert Pattinson, of all people. Oh, my God. (laughs) But it's like, it's one of these like ethereal, uh, very high concept kind of sci-fis being done by a director who normally does like art house type romance stuff. So it's probably, it's not going to be your average sci-fi, I don't think. It's going to be Eddie Redmayne. Redux. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome back to another episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast. As usual, we've got a nice big rundown of reviews and discussion of movie and TV news for you this week on the show. And coming up this week, we're going to be talking about the new Jason Statham shark-punching movie, The Meg, as well as Spike Lee's new film, Black Klansman. And we'll touch on Danny Boyle uh, leaving Bond 25, Uh, maybe a little bit of discussion of the True Detective trailer. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host Jason Chen. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing all right. This this TIFF stuff is uh, it's always a, a bit of a struggle every year um, <laughs> getting through that uh, that ticket selector. I mean, I have to give them credit; they've done a pretty good job improving it over previous years. I've kind of I've seen many different builds of that of that tool. Um, but yeah, especially when you're in a situation like me where I've got a whole bunch of tickets and I'm trying to not only arrange my schedule, but then um, make allowances for our good friend Kate Wilkinson's schedule and help her out with her ticket selection. So uh, it, uh, it can get a little bit hairy, but uh, I got through it. I got through it. Well, I'm I'm glad you survived to tell the yeah, tale. Yeah. A sweat was beating down. I was like, there was a, <laughs> they, they they put a counter on the uh, on the thing that's counting down from how many from minutes? Thirty minutes and ah, uh, oh, that's uh, a plenty of time. No, no, no. But if you're trying to like uh, do those final review, and if you're worried that you might have made a mistake with one of the things, and it's like a whole ticket out the window if you uh, if you make a mistake, it's uh, it's like diffusing a bomb for me. Ah, oh, come on, it's just like Amazon, just one click shopping. Let's go. <laughs> Um, but maybe let's uh, let, let's get over to the Meg. Oh my God, it's Megalodon. He's kidding, right? Because I saw that a few about a week ago now, and I don't know the. I think what sold me on this movie was the trailer, uh, specifically the the needle drop of the Bobby Darren uh, Beyond the Sea track that they use about halfway through the uh, the trailer. Um, first of all, I kind of love the song, but second of all, just the it kind of suggested that the movie had a bit more comedy to it because they were it made the whole thing feel a little bit more tongue in cheek um, because we are dealing with a movie about an eighty foot long shark. And that's essentially the setup is just there's an 80 foot long shark. It's like a remnant of a prehistoric era. 
It gets disturbed by some humans, one of which being Jason Statham. And then it just wreaks havoc and Jason Statham has got to show it who's boss. <laughs> you know, it's funny to think that other than Jaws, a lot of the most memorable shark films in in recent memory are just comedies. Yeah, or they're like unintentional comedies. Yes, yes. I was only told through a friend that The Meg was actually a book, like it's adapted from a book. Yeah. And yeah. apparently the book is quite good. I'm I remain skeptical, but you know, we'll we'll see. I I thought the trailer looked horrible. <laughs> I figured it tried to be maybe a kind of scary, like a thriller. Keep in mind people haven't seen it. But it it just seemed like it'd be a movie that'd be unintentionally hilarious and the only way it could be successful is if the film realizes um, itself that it's a comedy. Yes, and that is like, I would say that's one of the hardest things for movies like this to achieve um, to be unintentionally hilarious or to be knowing enough about how stupid its concept is and acknowledging it and like you know you see a lot of uh, production companies like chief of which being the asylum the makers of the sharknado series who try to kind of <laughs> force that on the audience and they they try to make something and intend for it to be bad and try to sort of manufacture that feeling of it's so bad it's good uh, but they don't really get there and i mean they just did the sixth one in the series which they claim is the final one and i mean it's at the point now where they've got dragon sharks and i'm just shocked there's six of them tara reed cloning herself into like future nazis or something (laughs) i don't know the trailer i watched the trailer a little while ago and it it was just incomprehensible just it's it's so bloated now with its own like in jokes that it it's kind of impossible to look at i didn't even know she was still working well yeah pretty much this is her only gig right now is sharknado Oh, the, and here's the weird thing about shark movies. I, I mean, I, I I would point people towards the the excellent roundup done by the YouTube channel Cinemassacre because uh, one of the the main guys on that channel had pretty much did a, a an exhaustive look at fifty, literally fifty of the horrible shark movies that he could uh, track down on DVD and home video, and there's the the genre is just like out there just duplicating itself constantly. You've got all these crappy sci-fi made-for-TV things, <laughs> you know, Sharktopus versus Crocosaurus and stuff like that, just like just bottom-of-the-barrel kind of material. And so, you know, and none of them, obviously they're all made in the tradition of Jaws, but none of them come anywhere close to Jaws. So it's kind of interesting for a movie like The Meg to kind of pop up in this genre and kind of be one of the first real examples of Hollywood kind of throwing its money and its weight behind uh, this genre when normally... <laughs> I think after Jaws, I think a lot of studios probably tried to make like monster animal movies, but none of them really quite took off like Jaws. There's there's a real There was a real kind of like perfect storm of uh, factors that came into making Jaws as good as it was. I mean, it was a famously troubled production, but Spielberg was like... Uh, really early in his career and things just went right. You know, a lot of, a lot of stuff went right. Um, Some of it accidentally to kind of make Jaws into, you know, probably one of the best 50 movies in the past century. Mm, Fair enough. Um, My question to you about the Meg is out of its ensemble cast, how many dumb characters are there? Uh, There's a lot. Yeah. I mean, movies like this, what was the dumbest move? 
I mean, they, they, they kind of reserve that for the villain. I don't, I I'm trying to decide whether it's worth putting spoilers in here because I mean, the movie does. Why not? All right. So if you haven't seen it yet, you probably won't until it comes out on home. Yeah. Video. Fair enough. Like when, when it comes to like these shark movies, you're either like a, a fan or you're yeah, not, you're either going to rush out and see it or not. Yeah. The good point. So <laughs> yeah. anyway, in the movie, there's this uh, billionaire character played by Rain Wilson from uh, the American version of the office. And uh, he's kind of like a tech bro. Like he, the, the movie doesn't really care enough to tell us what his line of business is, but uh, it's just, you know, he's described as being a billionaire and he's invested in this fancy um, underwater research facility, which has these like uh, underwater viewing platforms that look like hamster tubes <laughs> and uh, all of this like just pointless garbage. And, at first, he's kind of presented as being this very philanthropic guy who's interested in science and furthering uh, human discovery. But then it's kind of uh, he's revealed to be a little bit uh, selfish and into uh, in for himself. So they they reserve the really stupid stuff for him because he kind of uh, uh, he flies away in one of his fancy helicopters and then tries dropping like depth charges full of uh, high explosives at the on the shark. And just when he thinks that he's like gotten the shark and blown a big hole in it he goes down and like climbs on the corpse of the thing only to find out that it's a whale and the giant shark is right behind him and just uh, grabs him in one big bite actually kind of sounds kind of so there's that um so he's like he's kind of clinging to this like whale carcass just covered in like whale blood and fat and and then like the shark just gets him you know i mean we're talking Uh about these these sharks are like bigger than school buses so they can eat a person in a single bite uh no trouble yeah of course Um, but uh yeah i mean i think you would go to see this movie if you're a big enough fan of jason statham I would say um, to kind of see him in whatever. If you if you really don't care, are there any Jason Statham fans left out? I feel there? like there are a few. Yeah, I mean, uh, people who are going to uh, uh, people who enjoy him in the Fast and the Furious movies or are looking forward to his spinoff movie with The Rock. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Um, Hobbs and Shaw, but he's essentially played the same character since like the Transporter. Oh yeah, and that's pretty much that's exactly who he plays here. He plays this deep sea diver, uh, Jonas, somebody who uh, has a history with the Meg. You know, this this prehistoric creature he had an encounter with him during a uh, rescue gone wrong several years before the events of the movie. Anytime anyone's. Uh, named Jonas, I always think of that Weezer song. Oh, what Weezer song is that? My name is Jonas. I no, I don't know Weezer at all. Oh, you should fucking cut cut a clip into it. But it all sounds like Deep Blue Sea, which unfortunately you have not seen it. Eh? No, no, but but I, I know enough about Deep Blue Sea to know that it has like an oh, underwater, okay. underwater research facility. It's got like yes. uh, super intelligent sharks that were like yes. the product of some human experimentation. And yes. uh, a lot of cheesy one-liner type moments. Like obviously everyone's seen that bit where yes. Samuel Jackson gets uh, snatched in the middle of what's supposed to be an inspirational speech. Yes. Although that, that death scene, when you watch it for the first time, it's pretty jarring and surprising. And it's, I think one of the all time top like B movie deaths out there. So we're not going to fight anymore. We're going to pull together and we're going to find a way to get out of here. First, we're going to seal off this movie. But I mean, getting back to your point about yeah. um, movies that kind of 
know how bad they are and kind of lean into it. Um, the problem with this movie is that, you know, the trailer suggested that it was going to be a movie like that, but unfortunately this movie kind of doubles down. Like it wants to do that at, in certain scenes, but it also wants to be, um, like a, a hardcore drama at certain points as well. It, uh, it wants to play up the romance between, uh, Statham's character and, uh, this Chinese researcher, uh, marine biologist, of course. And it wants to spend a lot of time kind of contemplating the grief that these characters experience when they lose friends and family members to the sharks. It wants to talk about like Statham's PTSD, uh, for failed rescue attempts and stuff like that. So you've, it kind of like whiplashes between these like stupid summer movie moments and these kind of dramatic, uh, uh, pathos kind of moments. And it, uh, yeah, it, it, because it slingshots like, like that back and forth, you really can't get into it in the way that you want. And, uh, it just makes you, it it makes you wish for the kind of no holds barred sci-fi directive, uh, directive video kind of movies that shark movies have been for the past couple of decades. I also want to point out that, um, in the trailers, the shark looked really fake. Yeah, I would say the the CGI here. I mean, they put 150 million dollars into this movie. Surprisingly, I, I have a feeling. A l- Is that surprising though? Is that really surprising? Because this for a movie of this genre, yeah. But I, I think mean, normally this movie was. One of the reasons this movie had such a big budget is because I think they were catering to Asian audiences or Chinese audiences, I should say, more specifically. So it feels like half the financing came from Chinese uh, production companies. Oh, of course. Yeah. So and and these guys will throw money at stuff, right? So it doesn't surprise me. It's such a big budget movie. Um, how's it doing the box office? I don't even it's know. It's doing really well. I think it's it's got like three hundred mil so far. So it's uh, it's made back ba- domestic or total total so far. I think, but um, so it's not like it's not breaking any records or anything, but it's doing a lot better than people expected, especially given the concept. I don't know if it's doing a lot better than people kind of thought. I, I okay, so I, I just pulled up the numbers as of August twenty eighth. Um, domestic gross is one hundred eight million. And foreign is three hundred six million for a total of four hundred fourteen. Okay, yeah, so that's like that's easily more than twice the budget, which is you know pr- pretty safe territory for a movie like this, uh, especially when they've got marketing to account for. I'm not surprised it went over a hundred in domestic. I am surprised it did so well overseas in three hundred three hundred million. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but I think a lot like 144 in China alone, considering the fact that this movie spent literally 20 years in production hell, where, um, a bunch of different directors, a bunch of different stars were attached, uh, lots of script rewrites. I mean, I have heard though, that's because the book is really hard to adapt because the book is written from the POV of the shark. Really? Yeah, that's why I heard the book was good, because it wasn't quite like other shark novels. Oh, okay, because I know... Or or am I thinking of Jaws? I don't know what you're thinking. I, I, I know mean, one of the shark books was written from the perspective of the shark. I mean, that's possible, but I came across one of the sequels to the book series in the drugstore like a, a couple of days ago, and was reading the synopsis, and it's definitely like, you know, it's Jonas's story, like he's still in it a few books later. Right, okay. um, yes. But the... Uh, and, I mean... If there is that series of books for them to draw on and they decide to make a sequel, you know, they obviously could. Seems like things get a little bit crazier as the series continues. Like they start bringing in other prehistoric creatures that have been thought lost <laughs> nice. to science and uh, stuff like um, mosasaurs and like other aquatic dinosaurs, stuff like that. 
Um, so Whatever. Warner Brothers just found another another bankable IP. Good for them. Yeah. They but and uh, I don't even know how much they planned it, but we'll uh, yeah. If if they make another one, I might actually see it. I I I, I don't know. I I think I have a soft spot for movies like this. <laughs> some for some reason. I I'm willing to bet that they're gonna make a second. I think a lot of these big tentpole films. Um, even though they may not have explicit plans to usually have in mind like a potential sequel, because if it does well, you never know. And you kind of want to be prepared for it. Sure. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if this spawns another two sequels, actually make it a trilogy. But hearing you talk about how it, they introduce like dinosaurs and stuff, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm interested in now. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, apparently I mean, Guillermo del Toro was attached to this project once. Yeah, it's really it's really been one of those things that was knocking around Hollywood and uh, went through a lot of iterations before they finally got it made. Oh, Ruby Rose is in this movie. She is. Yeah, she's actually one of the the more entertaining characters in this one. Oh, she's uh she's like a hot name these days. Yeah, well, I mean, with the Batwoman casting and uh, do you watch those shows? I I kind of hate them no yeah. i mean i like the idea of her playing that character she seems like a good fit for it but um i there's way too much superhero tv right now for me to <laughs> waste any time with it i think a little too much superhero anything well true but like when you think if you think about like hmm i want to s- catch up on the Arrowverse, you're literally dealing with like i don't know what is it five seasons of arrow alone five seasons of the flash uh, Legends of Tomorrow, Supergirl, now Batwoman's coming into uh, into it. They're doing these crossover episodes between series. It, um, you know, they're they're kind of doing what what I think Marvel wanted to do with the Defenders on Netflix, but uh, didn't quite get right. there. Well, good good for DC for at least getting something right. Yeah, <laughs> it has its fan base. But maybe let's uh, let's jump over to something like completely different. Um, Black Klansman. The KKK is planning an attack. How do you propose to make this investigation? We'll establish contact over the phone. We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face to face. You for the white race, Ron? Oh, hell yeah. So there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? With the right white man, we can do anything. Did you see it? No, I did not see it. I wanted to, um, but uh, uh, I know... It's still out there. Yeah, it's still out there. Yeah, I think I, I, I still might catch it if I get a, uh, a free slot before TIFF starts up, but... Is this because you don't like Spike Lee, or is it because you're just not that interested in general? Uh, no, I mean, I I saw the trailer, and I liked the trailer, and I have liked some of Spike's films over the years, but I don't know, the... <laughs> yeah, that's most people. Just some. Yeah. I like some of his stuff. And I mean, I, I'm sure like uh, more like pro critics would probably make the argument that, you know, some of his are legitimately not good and, you know, you're not missing much there, but... Um, I agree. I agree with that sentiment. But the... I don't know, for me, Spike, between like the certain movies that he's made and then some of the writing that he's done, uh, his like... His the prose that he writes, especially when he's like uh, working on uh, crowdfunding campaigns for his various movies, I, there's something about the way he writes that drives me nuts. I, I think it's the the it's the it's actually like the punctuation and the capitalization of <laughs> that he uses. He's he's trying to be really stylistic with that. Drives me crazy. It's interesting you say that though because. Have you ever seen 25th Hour? No. That's the one with Edward Norton when he's a, a convict and he has to go back to jail and stuff. No, no, I haven't seen that one. Oh, okay. It's, it's, it's funny you should say that because I think Spike Lee's films speak to me because he has a real gift for writing some movie dialogue. Hmm. Yeah. Like, if you look at Malcolm X, 25th Hour, even Inside Man, I think, had a few 
good back and forth. And and Black Clansman. I did like Inside Man actually. Yeah, and Black Clansman for sure um, has some interesting dialogue. So it's interesting you say that though. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, not to say that like the dialogue or the the general writing in his movies I don't like. It's it's more right. to okay. do with like the prose or like just the 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 essays that he 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 publishes for uh, for other stuff. Um, but I don't <laughs> yeah, know. I mean, like uh... the 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 political. Uh, Anger, I guess, is the best word. Uh, without yeah. being too, without putting too fine a point on it, can also turn me off a little bit. I mean, I, I'm. Do you disagree with him, or are you just it's not a topic you like to? No, I think I, I think it's uh, the movies definitely need to be made, um, and the anger needs to be there because obviously, you know, there's a lot of a lot of problems out there f- uh, for a filmmaker like Spike uh, Spike Lee to to address. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just something about something about the blend for me, the his particular blend and style of of tackling that kind of anger. I just don't doesn't really right. talk speak to me. I mean, I think about like that's fair. Um, his like really big like one of his masterpieces, "Do the Right Thing." Right. I mean, that is a that is a that's an important film to watch. It's like part of a good film education, I'd say. But for me, at certain points, I'm like, all right, it's just a bunch of characters screaming at each other for two <laughs> hours, and they're screaming about good stuff and they're making good points. Have you not ever seen a Tyler Perry movie? <laughs> well, yeah, but that's that's well, yeah, and that now you're dealing with a whole other thing. But um, but yeah, it's just. For me, a movie like Do the Right Thing, as important as it is and as um, uh, artistic as it is, mm-hmm. the actual viewing experience for me just gets a bit tiresome because of the it's just the constant volume of the of the characters. Uh, um, fair enough. Yeah, but but uh, talk to me about Black Klansman because like <laughs> okay, uh, all right, well, people are saying that it's uh, this one's actually a pretty good one from Spike. It is quite good. I do recommend watching the movie. Um, but again, like the parts I didn't enjoy about Black Klansman have to do with Spike Lee himself as a, I think, a lightning rod of criticism and his own criticism of, you know, the status quo involving politics and racism and whatnot. I was going to write a review for this film. I, I really wanted to, but I struggled to find the words. The film itself is quite straightforward. So John David Washington plays Ron Stallworth who is a black police detective and on a whim he sees an ad in the local paper for um, I think it's KKK trainees or something like that and he gives him a call he ends up building rapport with a guy on the phone and then sort of or gets him gets himself invited to a KKK initiation thing and obviously he can't show up because he's black and sure. it's the KKK. So he joins forces with Adam Driver, who is a Jewish police detective. And together they become Ron Stallworth. And it's about how they infiltrate the KKK and and how they basically expose them and then prevent people from getting killed, obviously. So that part's very straightforward. I think I love films of this particular period yeah because this is in the 1970s right yeah yeah so like the clothing the cars everything was stylish i do think there are certain characters in the film that are caricatures and i i do think spike lee meant to do that on purpose Mm. but the for the most part it's john david washington who's denzel's kid by the way yeah and and adam driver pretty much driving the show and they're both excellent i would be a little hesitant to call them front runners for awards 
but I do think they're headed in that direction. Yeah, because I didn't even know that um, Denzel's son was so uh, uh, was working as an actor. I mean, uh, it d- doesn't come as a surprise necessarily, but but yeah, like uh, well, he was a football player at one point. So. Oh, was he? Okay, well, yeah, yeah, he was a pro football player at one point. Just about everyone in this cast is pitch perfect. I really enjoyed all the jokes. Um, there are some thinly veiled jabs at Trump, which. Mm. In my opinion, I didn't find particularly funny because I feel like I've heard every Trump joke in the world. And anytime a director or someone takes a shot at Trump, I feel like it's low-hanging fruit. Mm. So those jokes weren't necessarily the funniest jokes in the film or the ones I enjoyed the most. In regards to Spike Lee, so it, you you basically go through the beginning of Ron Stallworth infiltrating KKK and then the end where he prevents them from doing terrible things. I won't spoil it too much. But the thing with Spike Lee is that he always, I feel, needs to inject some of his own commentary into his films. Mm. And so when the film ends, the plot ends, he sort of, and spoiler alert, he tags on this like five minute documentary about the attack. Uh, Charlottesville in uh, Virginia. Yes. Okay. Yes. And he basically puts to cobbles this footage about the incident um, he puts a photo of the the white lady who was killed at the at the event, and he ends the movie with a shot of an upside down American flag, that's I believe red, white, and blue, like its original colors. But then it fades into black and white, uh, uh, just pure black and white, right. and then and then the film ends. So that part in particular bothered me, because I'm of the belief that. I think if you're going to make a film, the distinction between real life and not real life should be pretty clear. I thought the fictionalized story was fine. And then at the end, I felt like Spike Lee was trying to make a point that we kind of already know. And I felt unnecessary to the overall plot and the viewing experience. I get why he did it. I just don't agree with it because I think every point he wanted to make in that mini documentary was made much better in the film itself. Mm, Yeah. That's an interesting point because like, yeah, if you're, if you're not trusting the audience to kind of get the subtext of, you know, Hey, this, what, what these characters are fighting in the seventies is still going on today. Yes. That's exactly what you're saying. It's just like, we know. And I mean, yes, he has a right to do that as a director, but me as an informed citizen, I know. And I kind of went in this movie thinking that either I'm escaping into this story that could teach me or at least tell me and show me a lot of things uh, rather than, you know, rehashing real life events that I, I think just is almost meant in the film to make people uncomfortable. Right. Or at least to remind people of how our society is still uncomfortable with like equality and, and I wonder whether that little coda on the film would have been better used like as a supplement to the entire movie. So like if Spike still made it, but instead of releasing it as like tacked on at the end of the movie itself, if he did it as, um, you know, a supplement on a Criterion Collection edition or, um, you know how before Blade Runner 2049 came out, they did a series of three shorts Yes, uh, that were set in the world, uh, but prior to the events of 2049 mm-hmm. um, and kind of uh, filling in the gaps between the original film and the new one. It almost sounds like 
what Spike did at the end of Black Klansman would have been better used as like a digital exclusive or something like that. Right. Um, I'm all, I, I kind of agree. The only thing I would say is that the incident with the car and everything kind of deserves its own documentary. I think it, it, yeah. it, it, it deserves like a topic of its own. But you compare and contrast that with the opening title card of the film that says, and I quote, based on some for real, for real shit. So right away, you're kind of like, okay, he's going to show us something that happened in real life, but also he's going to lampoon it. He's going to make fun of it. Um, he's going to dramatize things that may be the film more interesting as a viewer. And then you tack on that documentary stuff, and then you just like you completely, I think, undo what you did before because the tonal shift is so jarring and so unnecessary. Yeah, yeah, it takes you out of it in a, in a way that wasn't intended. A little bit. The feeling I got from people leaving the theater was that they didn't really mind it. Um, but again, I'm one of those anal people who who just like who, who like to separate, you know, some of the real life stuff from the movie stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, that um, I mean, having not seen the film, but I it reminds me of how annoyed I get when I'm watching a biopic of a particular person, like a famous person, uh, and then during the credits, they it's like a bad habit for the director to show you some real life footage of the person <laughs> that we just saw a movie about. So like they did I'm okay it. with that actually. You're okay with that? Cause for me that drives me crazy. I'm like, uh, we should, if we're going to be making a movie where a famous person plays a real person, just let the whole movie be a package on its own. And if you gotta look up the Wikipedia article for the real life person, <laughs> once you're out of the theater or once the stream is done, um, do it. So you can like compare like, Ooh, maybe they didn't really choose an actor who looked exactly like that person. Or I wonder if that was accurate or blah, blah, blah. Like right. let the person do the research afterwards. Like uh, I, I, I find it, even if it happens during the credits, I'm like, no, you could have, you could have just run the credits. <laughs> really? I, that's the, I'm going to disagree with you because I think when you run it during the credits, it's fine. Okay. All right. But when you run it as part of your, your project, your film, your narrative, I think that's when I have a problem with it. Although with biopics, I'm a little more lenient because you are trying to depict someone's life, like someone's real life. Black Klansman is obviously based on real events, but I do believe certain things are basically not true or made up. Yeah, well, I, I read one take that suggested that the original book by Ron Stallworth is kind of boring to read. Um, Probably. It's, it's got a lot of procedure, a lot of paperwork, a lot of like, yes. you know, the That's police work for you, man. <laughs> yeah. Just the, the gritty, like nose to the grindstone bits of police work that um, doesn't make for a great film. And uh, um, obviously he put it in the book, but then Spike kind of colored it up a little right. bit. I will have to say too, to Spike Lee's credit, he could have made the, the KKK and the white people like really, really, really fucking dumb. Yeah. You know? And I there are caricatures and there are people who do really stupid stuff, but for the most part I I think I think he did a really good job of balancing that. Hmm. Um especially with Adam Driver's character, um with him having the the conflict between John David Washington about how one thinks it's a crusade and one thinks it's a dangerous job. Right. Um I John David Washington is really good. 
Like, if anything, go see it for his performance. I, I think he really nailed it. Yeah, well, I'm curious just to, just on that front. I mean, for sure, the, the fact and that... And he's in a bunch of movies coming up. Yeah, too. like, the fact that his career might be taking off, and, you know, it it is... I, I do find it interesting when, you know, there's a famous father who's had a lot of success as an actor, and then the son comes along, like, how how do how does their style seem like it's informed by their, their father or their mother? Uh, John David Washington, he was on a podcast with Bill Simmons from The Ringer, and they, they, they talk about that, too. Oh, and they really? talk about okay. Denzel's career, yeah. If you haven't listened to it, it's worth listening. You can find it on the web somewhere. <laughs> That's my plug for the other site. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, maybe jumping over from that into, uh, again, just completely different stuff where we're kind of all over the map uh, in this episode. We had Danny Boyle leave Bond 25. Some some would say peaceably. Other people would say that uh, he was he was kicked out by uh, Daniel Craig himself. Um, really? I didn't hear that one. Well, apparently, like, uh, Danny Boyle was upset about a uh, decision that they wanted to make about, like, killing Bond off in the film. That's the latest rumor. But how? what does Daniel Craig kicking him off have to do with that? That's the writer's decision, isn't it? And, like, the studio? No, because well, Daniel Craig is a producer, so uh, he he kind of has ultimate say over uh, him and the Broccoli's, obviously, um, who have been running the franchise forever. But I guess okay, all right, fair enough. Wait, he's gonna die in this one? Well, that was what they wanted. Apparently, that was what was pitched, and Danny Boyle didn't like that, and they said they kind of showed him the door. Huh. While while I was never a hundred percent sold on Danny Boyle being the director, I kind of agree with him on that point. I mean, I think that do you? Okay, interesting, interesting. Yeah, because why I, is that? Well, because you know, you think about the whole all the Bond movies, right? We've never seen yes. any of the any of the Bonds who are on their last film die in that film and then get kind of reincarnated by the next actor. You know, uh, it's always just been this one continuity and, you know, the movie, the series doesn't really care enough to or doesn't seem to think it's important to kind of say, are they all supposed to be the same character or um, are they like different men who take on the James Bond persona? Isn't that the interesting part, though? Like if they kill off Daniel Craig in this new one, then that confirms the theory that James Bond is a code name and not actually one person. Does that theory need to be confirmed is my thing. Like, do they need to actually say that outright or can they just imply it? I mean, well, what what do we really gain by by actually seeing him die? Well, for first, first of all, it'd be the first time we ever see Bond die. So I think that's the bigger shock than learning that James Bond is a potential code name for numerous people. I would be interested to see that, actually. Daniel Craig dying, for sure. Like, not faking it. On the other side of the argument, I can see how, you know, they've, they have made an effort with the Daniel Craig movies to kind of, especially with a lot of the retconning that happened in Spectre, to try to join all of the films narratively in one big arc, you know. with What a terrible decision, eh? Yeah. So, I mean, in that respect, it would make sense if they were going to essentially say that everything from Casino Royale up to Bond 25 was all one big arc and therefore killing him off at the in the final film kind of puts a button on this weird little chunk of Daniel Craig Bond. And it also destroys the relationship between him and Blofeld, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say it, it weakens it a bit. Because yeah, they're, yeah. they're like it's, siblings. Uh, you know, why can't they just be two guys who come to blows over their various jobs? One guy's a supervillain, another guy's a super spy. Like, does it have to be all in the family like that? I don't know. It felt like a cop-out to me. Well, I mean, Blofeld has the reputation of a supervillain. I don't know if they played him that way in the film because he was a terrible villain. Um, But I don't know. I mean, that's kind of like the basis of how Idris Elba was going to be cast as Bond started, right? How how they were talking about Bond doesn't have to be like a a, a white dude. Sure. 
Yeah. I guess if Daniel Craig is going to be in this one, then they still kind of have to continue with that story. Although I'd be interested to see why um, ultimately Danny Boyle left because creative differences could mean a whole lot of different things. Oh yeah. Yeah. And of course like this rumor about Bond's death, that could be just complete garbage just made up by some rumor mill. Right. So we have, we have no confirmation about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could, you could also say that maybe Danny Boyle wasn't a good fit for the Bond franchise, just stylistically. Like he, he I doesn't know he, I mean, he makes one, one person was pointing out how like he tends to make movies that are like, really frenetic um, in their pacing in a way that uh, Bond films generally aren't. I thought freaking uh, Quantum of Solace was frenetic. Yeah, that's the, that in and of itself. But like as a, as a whole franchise, they tend to be pretty like even keeled in their pacing. Right. Okay. Fair enough. But that was just one person like kind of commenting more on Dan- Danny oh, Boyle okay. as a Danny Boyle style, like their, their version of it. But I think one of the best things about Bond is that you have so many directors taking the helm and, um, they're all generally feel the same, but there are certain touches that each director puts on them that kind of makes them their own. I was always kind of interested to see that. It's kind of like Harry Potter, how they had three or four different directors, and each of them had kind of brought... Up until the end, when they when they found the one guy that uh, kind of made it so consistent. Yes, and I think they had to because the, the final two, three books kind of like are basically one one is one story arc. True. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited to see what they do Bond 25. I would hate it for it to be another rehash or soft reboot. And Daniel Craig's getting old, dude. <laughs> like he he has aged worse than Tom Cruise. So. Yeah, I mean, I think he just wants to get this in the can. Of course, he's getting paid a buttload of money. Uh, yeah, and he meant, you know, there was this big fuss made when Spectre was in its marketing rounds, you know, whether he was he was going to do another one and blah blah blah, but it was a negotiating tactic to get a bigger paycheck. That's what it was. But do you have like a, a favorite director? It has to be a British director uh, who would take over from Boyle? Interesting question. David Fincher's not British, hey? He's American. No. Ah, yeah. give me some names. I can't. Um, well, a few of the ones that are being tossed around, not all of these make sense. Like Edgar Wright has been tossed around because he's free no. right now. Um, but he's not a good fit no. in my, feel, my view. No, me neither. Um, did you see the movie 71? 71. It's set in the uh, in 1960s, 1970s Ireland during the Troubles. No. It's about a, um, it's got uh, that kind of up and coming uh, English actor, um, Jack McConnell or O'Connell, I think. Um, He plays like a British soldier who's stuck on his own uh, in Ireland uh, overnight in a really uh, nasty part of Ireland uh, when, you know, everyone's gunning for, uh, for British soldiers during the troubles. And uh, uh, it's a really, it's a pretty tense movie. It's, uh, it's directed by this guy, uh, Jan Demarge. I think is a French director, actually. So maybe my argument is off, but a few people have been floating his name around because they feel that he he kind of has that that perfect blend of like tension, action. Um, he understands the kind of like British irony that um, that 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 British people kind of expect to see in a, in a Bond film. And I kind of I kind of think you know, having seen Seventy One, he'd be a good fit. Would you ever want to see Chris Nolan? I'd love to see Chris Nolan do Bond. I don't think he would though. Why wouldn't he? I mean, he doesn't. He's never been doing any. He's not been the kind of guy to kind of pick up a franchise partway through. And Batman? No, but he was. That was like his own thing. Like those three movies together. Right. Okay. But I mean, he could start doing his own thing right now. I, well, true. But I'm like, if if his past 
career is any is any indication he's not he's less likely to kind of come in in the middle of a franchise and mike newell maybe i i actually really quite enjoyed goblet of fire from the harry potter films yeah yeah if i want to go off the board steve mcqueen Ooh, i would watch that that'd be really interesting eh? i haven't seen widows yet but i mean that's that's steve well you know what you're gonna get though do i i mean like it's his first time with like a big action movie no but i think you have a general idea no i don't know i mean if like you think about his other movies like 12 years a slave and hunger and shame like yeah none of those movies have like the big action beats of of a bond film so i mean if if he's doing it in in widows then maybe it's going to be great but. no but he, he he does have a flair for like character development and really slow pacing and i don't know maybe he can yeah it could work yeah i'm not i'm not writing it off i'm just like he's he's kind of unknown in that way right and but he's also um got particular tastes in what he likes to do so yeah i I don't know where it's gonna go i mean i feel like they'll probably make an announcement pretty soon um maybe even by the time this episode is out but uh but yeah there's 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 still a lot of potential there the the one thing i guess widows has that the other ones don't is a big gun scene or gunfights i should say i don't know i think i think i'd be really interested to see what he can do with bond it'll look great i guarantee you that oh yeah yeah so his he tends to to work with really good cinematographers and and with music and and i think he can take the bond character to places that no other director probably can or think about or even dare to do Mm, yeah kind of get back to that uh, the the pathos from casino royale that'd be a great way to end this this kind of chunk of them yeah i i think if you want that casino royale type movie though i think mike newell might be a little better i think mike newell's a little more mainstream quote unquote all right well uh then yeah again changing tracks totally um maybe let's talk a little bit briefly about we're both big fans of uh true detective so uh they they finally released a trailer for the uh, uh third season it's like a minute long my whole brain's a bunch of missing pieces Do you think you could just go on and never once have to look back? But I don't know. It got it got kind of whetted my appetite for it. I'm uh, I'm kind of back on the true detective train. After I watched the trailer, I just want to see more. I was like really unsatisfied by it. Well, I mean, it's like what maybe five or ten shots, something like that. It's a minute long with not a lot of dialogue. It's you know that there's some sort of like two separate storylines kind of going on. Yeah, you've kind of got the... Well, it's very much like season season one in that way, yeah. Yeah, you have old Mahershala and then young Mahershala. And I... When is it released? When is it coming out? I think they... All they said was January. They didn't give a date. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm very... I'm looking very much forward to it. I think have Nick Pizzolatto getting some help is probably a good idea. I'm going to temper my expectations, though, because I feel like... Like season two, like I feel like maybe I hyped up True Detective too much, and it ends up being kind of disappointing. Yeah. And yeah, maybe honestly, like his his writing style and his shows take quite a while to like get into. Yes, um, I think one of the faults with season two is that they they revealed important storylines too late into the season. Yes, yeah, I agree with that too. Yeah, so maybe they'll fix it this time. I am glad anytime there's a like a hard true. Not true crime. Hard crime story set in like this like rural area uh, set, or setting you that isn't L.A. or New York yes. or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I would say that like the best parts of True Detective season two were when they got out of the city of L.A. and uh, kind of, you know, you were alone on the coastal highways or in mysterious mansions and places like that. Like not the not the recognizable L.A. Mm hmm. 
but yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there, there were a lot of issues with season two mixed in with a lot of kind of high points too. Um, it was a real mixed bag for me. Mm. And then, well, uh, for one last, last little quick hit before we get into what I think is uh, going to be the, uh, a longer segment. Um, I, ca- I caught a glimpse of the, uh, the first trailer for the new Facebook watch show, Sorry for your loss with Elizabeth Olsen. Who choice is this one again? So Facebook Watch is like, you know, Facebook obviously wants a piece of the Netflix slash Amazon Prime slash every other streaming service pie. Right. But what's what's this movie? Well, it's not a movie. It's a show um, called uh, Sorry for Your Loss uh, from James Ponsult, uh, who made The Spectacular Now and Smashed. Um, so he's got a, okay. he's got like a, you know, if you've seen either of those movies, they're like, they're very tender, uh, indie films with very broken characters in them who kind of achieve a level of self-awareness by the, by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's got a, he's got a real knack for difficult situations, but put through a lens that kind of lifts people up by the end of it. Um, so they've got this new show called, uh, sorry for your loss that's coming out. Elizabeth Olsen stars in it. She plays, uh, a 30 something woman who, whose husband is killed suddenly. Um, and she, the, the show kind of picks up with her dealing with her grief, going to like grief counseling groups. She's um, very good in those roles. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the combination of her plus this showrunner, James Ponsolt, um, this could be a pretty strong debut for this platform, Facebook Watch. Um, you know, I think they're they're playing a strong card here if they're going to try to hook people into paying attention to yet another streaming platform. Do you have to have Facebook to watch this? I don't know how they're going to do the actual uh, subscription uh, if, like, it's free to everyone who has Facebook now or or something like that. Um but yeah, they're they're gonna have to work out a way to to make it easy for people to join up with this thing because I think if they put too many barriers in place, like too much of a paywall or blah blah blah, um, it's just not gonna take also, off. Also, yeah, I don't want to have a Facebook account just so I can watch it. I I, I hate Facebook. <laughs> but I mean, why would Facebook do that though? They uh, they want to get all your data. Well, they do have like a very big audience. I just I'm just saying I. I think there is a strong pushback towards Facebook, not just because of the recent stuff, but if you ask all the young people these days, Facebook is terrible. Exactly. They don't use Facebook. So right away, not only are you cutting out probably the biggest consumers or the most avid consumers of this kind of content, you're also cutting out a pretty big demographic. Yeah. And uh, I think that's probably Facebook's probably pretty worried about that. Uh, I mean, I can't speak for Mark Zuckerberg or, or that monolithic, co- uh, corporation, but I would say <laughs> they're probably more aware than, than anybody about the demographics on their platform. And they're probably thinking like, we got to get competitive in this video space or this streaming space. Um, if we're going to keep people hanging around. Yeah. Um, but they've been rolling out stuff for a while now. I think they started with sporting events before that. And yeah, yeah. As, as big of a sports fan I am, I mean, they didn't get any really good games or anything, but I was just, it, I, anytime I have to go on Facebook to watch something, it, it turns me right off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll see what happens if they can, if they can build a, uh, an audience behind this, maybe it'll, it'll work out for them. I know that they're mm. apparent the word on the street is that they're being pretty aggressive. You know, they're going after a lot of the same projects that, um, 
uh, Netflix and Amazon are, and of course, of course, uh, there are all the big ones. Apple, the Apple's big... in the mix with their streaming platform as well, and then you've yeah, got like, you want the high profile ones, and it's just like I, it's it's getting a little bit silly now for me. Like you've got um, YouTube is is bringing like eighty original. Uh, shows and movies to their platform. Um, you've got CBS doing new Star Trek series on CBS All Access. Disney's got theirs coming online. They've got a name for it, Disney Play. Uh, yeah, the DC is going to have uh, their streaming service with that uh, uh, F-bomb dropping Robin in it, played by Brenton Thwaites. I mean, it just... Oh, yeah, that was awful. Yeah, oh, my there's God. There's just, like, there's just too many shows. There's too much stuff. Well, I wouldn't say too many shows is a bad thing. Um, the only thing I would say that this is basically the cable industry again. Like, you're going to be en- end up paying yeah. for each channel. And some smart elect telecom company is going to be like, well, okay, I'm going to have Netflix, Apple, blah, 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 all available. And if you want it, you got to pay me a hundred bucks yep. a month. Yep. There's like, I can already see it like 50 years down the road, not even 20 years down the road. That's probably what it's going to become. Especially since the FCC chairman's piece of crap <laughs> doesn't care about this stuff Ajit pie yeah like these organizations don't care about your average consumer all they want is your money no of course not so i mean i i guess i'm okay with it because i can't do anything about it but it just sucks that certain platforms that have exclusive content i'll just never see yeah and you know what i'm fine if i don't see it so sucks to be them <laughs> They will tremble in fear with your boycott. Exactly. And you know what will definitely not get a lot of eyeballs? Oh, what's that? Joaquin Phoenix's Joker movie. Oh, yeah. Here we go. This is this is the, the yeah, it's probably the best segue you could hope for right there. <laughs> well, you have to try. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so recently I you you were the one. Oh, no. Sorry. Was it? I who sent you the link about Alec Baldwin playing the Joker. Um, I think you you tweeted like you saw the news and then you tweeted it out. You said like what the fuck and and then I was like I tried to defend it initially because I, I yeah I don't even know why <laughs> I'm an optimistic person. I don't like oh to, my god I don't like to condemn movies before they are even in production. You know unless it's a blatantly bad idea. Idealists like you get hurt the most. It pains me to see. Well, you know I mean I'm I'll sign up for punishment. I mean if it if it's <laughs> If it's for the if it's for the good wow, of the Rob, art I didn't form, know you were into that kind of stuff. Don't make this a BDSM thing. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe there's BDSM in this Joker. It's going to be hard and edgy. Uh, that's what they're saying. I mean, I, and we and we um, talked about this on the show too, but previously, like when when Joaquin uh, Phoenix was cast, obviously that in and of itself was a bit of a left turn uh for the production to say nothing of a little bit uh, to say nothing of like the whole like where it started when they said that. Martin Scorsese was on as a producer and Todd Phillips from the hangover movies was going to direct, uh, you know? Yeah. That I'm skeptical about that. So too. there's just like, it's, it feels like it's one weird decision after another. And now, and now Baldwin's off again, like in the space of a couple of days, he's quit. So cause he's smartened up. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, he claims it's scheduling. It wasn't so much that Baldwin was going to play, um, Thomas Wayne it was how they were going to portray Thomas Wayne, who I think is a very underdeveloped film character from the comic books. And also how, like, I hated how they described him as an 80s type businessman that's like Trump. I'm like, I don't I see this on fucking SNL? Yeah, I mean, Jesus. I, I was on board with the... Like, come on, Alec Baldwin, get another shtick. Like I, like I said about in Black Klansman, whenever you're making fun of 
Trump, okay, that's great, but it's also low-hanging fruit. And it's really distracting in the movie because I go to a movie to escape. I do not need to be reminded that you guys all think Trump is a terrible person. But clearly when he won the election, it was clear that we can't just shove these people aside because they'll make... They'll vote this guy into office. I see what you're coming, where you're coming from, though. I mean, the point has been made. You know, he's the president. You know, there's a million uh, products making fun of him in various formats. You got like <laughs> yeah. the, the animated show, our cartoon president from Stephen Colbert. Um, you got all the talk shows uh, on about him. I've never seen yeah, that. Stephen Colbert was an executive producer on this like weekly animated show with like oh yeah i i kind of like the animation style i like the the way that, is it funny though that's the thing apparently it's not that funny the writing doesn't back oh. it up okay well here's the thing i used to like colbert on the daily oh the daily show yeah once he got his own show and then moved i think he moved to a new another network just a few years ago like he stopped being funny or good well, he's, he, well he went mainstream and you know he's the host of the tonight show now so or not the tonight show um uh late night but he's he's just not a good late night show host I, his shows frankly i think pretty boring but uh going back to the movie <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of dig on stephen colbert there yeah well a little bit um i was also like shocked to read that they were gonna film in two weeks two freaking weeks what the hell well, i mean it's been in production or pre-production for a number of months though i so they guess must but i mean to hire a guy and then have him back up three days later, like I'm kind of skeptical of how prepared you are for yeah. this. I really feel like they don't even have much of a story because I think anytime, see, like the Joker is like a really iconic character, and he's he's great if you do it well, and he can go really really wrong when you don't do him well. And people who who have read like I think it's the Death in the Family where the Joker really takes a dark turn and it, it does, it's not an enjoyable read anymore. Walking Phoenix is a great choice. If you want to play like a really strange demented Joker, but I also like, I'm really cautious about how you want to portray this because it could end up being kind of like uh, a kind of torture porny. Yeah. And I don't really think that's what I would personally like to see. Granted, anything's better than Jared Leto's, awful joker in suicide squad yeah i mean the yes in suicide squad the, the yeah. rough outline that i've seen for this one is that if it, i mean if they're gonna go with a joker based on the one in a death in the family then joaquin probably makes a bit more sense because that is to your point like darker grittier um you know edgy and slightly uncomfortable yeah. and that makes sense because you know that's the one that infamously uh ends with joker beating uh robin the second robin to death with a crowbar and I think exploding yeah, and the stuff he does to like Barbara Gordon. Well, Jesus. No, that's, and then that's there. That's the, the other important difference because the Barbara Gordon bit is from the killing joke. Okay. Sorry. I was thinking of the killing joke. Then that one I think is more terrifying to me. Yeah. So darker. then if you're thinking of the killing joke, then that one is the, was kind of the first comic that where Joker's backstory was, was, or one of his possible backstories was revealed. And right. they kind of show him as a failed comedian who gets drawn into a heist and uh, because he needs money and he gets uh, toppled into a vat of chemicals by Batman when Batman shows up to, uh, to bust up the heist. And that uh, in addition to him having a really bad run of luck over the course of the day, um, including like his, his wife uh, dying and her losing their unborn child. 
um, and all these things, it's kind of presented as being like one bad day is all that separates sane people from insane people. Mm. And that's the kind of, that's the theory that Heath Ledger brought to the climax of the dark Knight. You know, he's trying to prove to Batman that if he, if he gives all of the people on the boats in that climax, uh, climactic scene, one bad day that he can, uh, make Batman go crazy. Um, or he can make the people of Gotham go crazy as well. Do you think this film is possible without a Batman or a Batman reference or a reference to Bruce Wayne? I mean, if they have Thomas Wayne in there, that's a kind of getting close to it without going all the way. It, it depends whether they decide to go all the way up to it or to include Batman being responsible for the creation of Joker. If they don't, if they don't have that scene, if or if they play that scene differently, then they don't need Batman. Arguably. FYI, did you know that when the first Batman movie came out with Tim Burton, the fact that they retconned Joker to be the killer of his parents was like a really controversial decision. Oh yeah, yeah, because he's. Uh, I, I would say that the Batman origin story works better when it's just an average thug who kills. I agree. The, uh, the Wayne. I agree completely. Yeah. So the fact that. Joaquin Phoenix is going to interact with Thomas Wayne somehow. I mean, I mean, it's possible that, uh, you know, Thomas Wayne is just seen in like in newsreel footage in the background or something. I guess. But I I kind of doubt it if you're going to cast someone, you know, so high profile. Granted, Alec Baldwin had a really, really minor role in Black Clans, but I don't think he was like billed as part of the top cast, though. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe maybe that's all this was or that's all the role is. I mean, it sounds like the the bigger roles in this Joaquin Phoenix movie uh, are going to Robert De Niro and Mark Marin because um, I wonder what were they going and Zazie Beats Zazie Beats is she in it I don't know but oh it'd be cool if she was know. but De Niro's playing like a sleazy late night host who's apparently supposed to give uh, Joker oh before he's God. Joker his first break on his show as a as a stand up comedian and then Mark Marin is supposed to play the kind of equally sleazy booker for the late night show huh. who kind of is the one who recruits the joker character so interesting you know, Mark, yeah so there's this kind of like failed comedian bit which is which is definitely a callback to the killing joke and a callback to i think the cartoon the animated series i think in the animated series there was a time where i think the joker was like a failed stand-up i think that was part of his backstory so that's interesting i wonder if then the red hood becomes a pretty big storyline, which is like the character the Joker person played before he became the Joker. Yeah, because the, the idea in the comic is that um, the Red Hood is just kind of like a costume that gets passed around between thugs so that yes. um, no one guy can get uh, can get caught as the Red Hood and that he can kind of be this infamous character who strikes fear into the hearts of cops and average people. Um, but then it just so happens that the Joker, the guy who will be Joker, is kind of forced into being the Red Hood for this heist, and that happens to be the night that Batman shows up and kicks him into the uh, the chemicals. Yep, that's pretty much his origin story. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I I have uh, maybe, maybe unlike you, I still have that uh, that kind of uh, that hope that um, the best parts of the Killing Joke will. You disappoint uh, me sometimes. Hey. <laughs> they can do a better job with the killing joke story in this thing than they did with that animated one from last year, or the year before we're golden. Oh yeah. That one was bad. Eh? Not a high bar to clear. I'll give it that. But, uh, I don't know. I, I like the idea of a superhero movie being made for like 40 million and having a really weird cast. I think, we okay. need more. I think we need more of that. Okay. That I agree. I, I think we can, 
I think test the boundaries of what should be deemed a superhero movie with especially without a big budget. I'm just really not convinced that this is going to be a good film just based on what we've heard and seen so far. That's all. But uh, uh I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, that about does it for this episode. We were all like I said, we were all over the map in this episode, but I feel like we uh we ticked off a lot of uh little story bits that have been percolating for a while. Uh, I have another whole rant that I wanted to do this episode. I'll save it for for next episode. Wait, 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 wait. Um, what rant? Well, no, it's going to take too long. But it's it, uh, no, no. What is it? It's about, it's about. I'll tease you. I'll tease you for the next oh episode. Oh my god! Um, I'm getting more and more annoyed about Netflix and them buying up festival movies. But that's all I'll say about it because I have to think about it a little bit more. Um, oh, it's uh, all right. Fine, but let, let that let that kind of like tease you a little bit because uh, I don't know they've they've been buying up a lot of movies that I feel deserve proper theatrical distribution and <laughs> whatever. Maybe it's the future of movies. Maybe it's the maybe it's the destruction of everything we hold dear. Wow, dramatic much. <laughs> Um, but I think that about does it for this episode like I said all you idealists you're gonna get hurt so bad one day (laughs) head on over to kinetoscope.ca we have a uh, a review of the Meg if you're uh, interested in in more on that and then of course we will have more coverage of the film festivals as they roll out through uh, September and October Um, but until the next time my name is Robert Snow in Toronto and my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver thanks for listening